you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. LAist Studios. Hi, everybody. This is Retake. Every week, we offer a critical and informed perspective on what's happening in entertainment, and we highlight innovative artists and their creative content. I'm your host, John Horn. On this week's episode, the latest developments in the ongoing streaming wars and The Territory. It's a new documentary about the fate of the Brazilian Amazon, co-created by members of an indigenous community who are fighting to protect it. If we want to keep uh, surviving on this beautiful planet we're so lucky to live on, they have some answers and they have some knowledge that we would do well to start listening to. But first, here's my retake for this week. It's been nearly a year since actor and producer Alec Baldwin fatally shot cinematographer Helena Hutchins and wounded director Joel Souza on the set of Rust. As we approach that grim October 21 anniversary, investigators have not yet filed any charges, despite some earlier findings from workplace safety investigators that the New Mexico production exhibited, quote, plain indifference, unquote, toward gun and ammunition handling. The Rush shooting launched a rank-and-file industry push for safer sets, and some lawmakers even considered a ban on using real guns on TV and film productions. And if the industry is actually going to bring about real change and prevent another such tragedy, it kind of needs to know who was responsible and what went wrong, regardless of whether or not anyone goes to jail. Earlier this week, New Mexico's Office of the Medical Investigator concluded that Hutchins' death was an accident. But that conclusion is not necessarily exonerating because prosecutors can apply another standard, negligence. The higher the negligence, the higher the chance of a criminal action potentially being brought by state prosecutors, particularly in regards to how a live round ended up in Baldwin's gun. Also under recent scrutiny is whether Baldwin pulled the trigger while he aimed it at Hutchins. Baldwin says he didn't pull the trigger and that the gun essentially discharged on its own. The Federal Bureau of Investigation, which the state brought in to help with ballistics, recently cast doubt on the actor's explanation. The FBI said the gun, quote, could not be made to fire without a pull of the trigger, unquote. In a podcast interview this week with former CNN anchor Chris Cuomo, Baldwin said he might have shot Hutchins by, quote, fanning the revolver. In old Western movies, you'd see someone fan the hammer of the gun. The hammer didn't lock. You pulled it back to an extent where it would fire the bullet without you pulling the trigger. He didn't mention that shooting a gun in that manner typically requires a person to hold the trigger down with one hand while the other hand rapidly slaps the hammer back. In February, the son and widower of Hutchins brought a wrongful death lawsuit against the actor, who also served as a producer of Rust. The Hutchins family says Baldwin is largely responsible, perhaps criminally so, for killing Hutchins because he didn't follow, I'm quoting the complaint now, basic rules for safe gun handling, unquote. 
New Mexico safety investigators in April fined the production the maximum amount possible, $136,000. Now, some 10 months later, the industry still needs to address Hutchins' killing more thoroughly, and the more information the industry receives, the safer it could be for everyone on a set going forward. Coming up after the break, the riveting new documentary, The Territory. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Welcome back to Retake. I'm John Horn. What does the survival of a small indigenous community in the Brazilian rainforest called the Uru have to do with the fate of the planet? It turns out a whole lot. The new National Geographic documentary, The Territory, explains the close connection. It's directed by filmmaker Alex Pritz, but it's also co-produced and because of the COVID pandemic, largely filmed by the Uru people themselves. The sad thing that you can say about this film, it is a movie both about indigenous genocide and about the planet's dying by rampant deforestation. And I don't know if those are separate movies or one thing overlaps with the other, but in your own mind, was it always going to be that story, those two basic elements combined, or do they, do they just naturally overlap? That's a great question. You know, I, I didn't set out to tell a story about the indigenous experience. Uh, I set out to tell a story about the people defending the rainforest um, and, and arriving in Brazil and, and meeting you know, some of the activists that are at the core of the film. It became really apparent really quickly that that story had to include front and center this indigenous community. Uh, and so then the story grew, you know, in several ways from there. But I actually think of it less about, you know, it's not so much a story about indigenous genocide and, and the destruction of the planet as it is trying to reframe in people's minds the idea that indigenous people are not so much the victims of, of climate change or of this genocide, but rather our best shot at a livable future. Like if we want to keep uh, surviving on this beautiful planet we're so lucky to live on, they have some answers and they have some knowledge that, that we would do well to start listening to. And yet, as you're thinking about that, the debate and actions over climate change have never been more dire, that there's been a lot of inaction. And I've talked to a, a number of uh, environmental activists over the last few months, and what they say is, we need to change our tactics. We're not making any progress. We, what we're doing is, even when we're being radical, is nothing more than kind of ad advanced... Uh, Advanced vandalism is what they say. And what they basically say is like, we have to take up arms. We have to fight this as if it's a war. And I think that's kind of what's going on at a small scale inside your film. This is, I mean, they're not, you know, armies. There's not, you know, drone strikes. But this is a war for survival. And it's not just this indigenous um, group's survival, but the, the forest survival and the planet's survival. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think there is a, a global war on nature happening. And this is one 
battlefront and in that war. And the way that the Uruwau have defended themselves and their territory and the land that they hold a, a really deep uh, traditional and spiritual connection to is militant. You know, they are willing to to defend that land in a really serious way. And, you know, I, I'm, I was really inspired and moved by by their dedication to that fight. And they also seem, I mean, you talked about spirituality. They also seem to define this idea that we are custodians of this planet rather than it is our dominion. And that gets into a lot of kind of theological arguments that you see trotted out, but about whose planet it is. Is it, you could say, God's planet? Is it somebody's planet? Or is it ours to take advantage of? And I think, um, tell me again how I say their name. Uru Ewawau. You can call them the Uru. But the Uru, I think, say that they are caring for this planet rather than to take advantage of it. Absolutely. I think that is a fundamental difference in the way that these settlers and farmers relate to the land as opposed to the indigenous people in our film. And, you know, I, as a white American man, I recognize that the way that I was brought up culturally is closer to the way that the farmers view the land as private property, as something that is defined as a unit enclosed, uh, able to be bought and sold, transferred between people. And, and when you own it, you can do what you want to that land. That land has no rights in comparison to you. You can extract what you want from it. You hold dominion over it. And in some cases, you have a divine right to it, you know, that that is bestowed by, by some higher God. Uh, as opposed to the way that the Uruwau view the land as something that, that we are so lucky to have been born into and have a debt of responsibility towards, that we should spend you know, our lives working to uphold this land that has given us so much in return. And by definition, they are indigenous people, so they have been on this land forever, or however many generations you can go back. And it wasn't really until early 1980s that 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 they had contact with what you would call the modern, the real world. I don't want to describe it as better because it isn't, but they had contact from outside. What happened then and how did that change their lives? Yeah, I mean, from from their perspective, that was the original invasion, um, you know, becoming encircled by this, this outside group um, that had brought death and disease and, and violence and environmental destruction. Um, and so in 1981, when the Brazilian government forcibly contacted and began assimilating a lot of these indigenous groups in preparation for a road that they were trying to build through this part of the Amazon, um, the Uruwau and a couple other groups uh, you know, saw their population decline by over 50%. More than half of their people died um, in, in those first two years after contact. So a really difficult, violent period for them. And, you know, there's still three isolated yet, uh, you know, uncontacted groups living in that land. So their defense of this forest is as much about defending the plants and animals as it is about defending these distant relatives of their own that continue to call that home. The first invasion that you see in the film um, happened just 10 days after Bolsonaro took office. He hadn't been able to put any new policies in place. No laws had been changed yet. But you see so clearly the effect of this inflammatory, hateful rhetoric that he had been building up through his whole campaign, unleash, open the floodgates for people to think, all right, my guy's in power. I have impunity. I am able to go out and just claim this land that isn't mine. And I think we see parallels of that here in the United States, the effects of political rhetoric 
on, you know, marginalized groups of people who who take that as the gospel. I would say we see parallels in Israel, too, because there's a scene where there's an Israeli flag in the background of a Bolsonaro speech, and what he's doing reminds me, and I suspect a number of people of the occupied territories, of taking land that isn't yours against international law because you can. Yeah, I think, you know, states that are driven by this settler colonial uh, paradigm share a lot of things in common. The United States, um, Brazil, Israel. The speech that you were just referencing, um, you know, where he says there's not going to be another inch of indigenous land and we're going to put a firearm in every house in Brazil. He was saying that um, at the Hebrew Club. And, and that's why there's that uh, Israeli flag in the background. And, you know, I can't say whether that's a coincidence or not, but I, I think um, that image itself of those words in that space speaks volumes. This seems like a really basic question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Your titles on this film are director and cinematographer, but it feels like those traditional titles don't really describe how this movie was made and who else helped direct it and shoot it. So can you explain a little bit about how the footage was assembled, where it came from. This film, on, I've, I've worked on a couple of other films too, feature films, and, and this film, unlike any other I've been part of, was a, a true collaboration. Um, we worked with the Uru Wow beginning, you know, uh, early days, just to help explain our process. I brought cameras down. Members of the Uru Wow, elders, had never seen a feature film before. And so in order to explain what we were doing, how we were making films, I felt uh, a responsibility to demonstrate my craft and how I felt films were made and, and what they were capable of, as well as what they cost in terms of, uh, you know, giving up trust and, and freedom and privacy and all sorts of stuff. Um, and then when COVID happened, we, we took that idea of a participatory film 10 steps further. And I was barred from entering the Uruguay territory, as was anybody else. Nobody in or out was what Bitete said. And so worked with the community as co-producers of the film from, from there on out. And so my co-cinematographer, Tangai Uruguay, is indigenous. Um, we have indigenous executive producers. The Uruguay Association as a company is a, a co-producer of the film and receives equal amount of, of back-end profits as anybody else. And, and so really tried to, to structure the film in a way that felt equitable and, and that felt like it was going to leave this community better off than, than where we found it, at least in terms of being able to, to control their own narrative. You mentioned the name Bitate. Will you explain who this person is and why he's central to this story? Yeah, Bitate is this amazing 18-year-old kid, really, when we first meet him, a teenager, who, in response to Bolsonaro's election, his community said, we don't feel like we have the tools to continue fighting the way that we know how. You know, our ability to defend our land is part of a new world. And Bitate, as a kid born in the late 90s, is a digital creature. You know, he's on Instagram. He under, He's very media savvy, very politically savvy, understands technology. And so part of Bitete's role in becoming the leader at the, the age of 18 was to bring technology into the community. And so he wrote grant applications to get drones and GPS and cameras to try to translate what his community was experiencing, these invasions and this violence, into Western empirical terms that the government could not ignore. When that you show he, up he could image, document it. Right? Yeah, absolutely. He had proof and evidence of, of what was happening to his people, and that was a game changer. And you have another activist who, again, don't judge a book by its cover, who is much mightier than she looks. Tell us about her. Nadinia is a force of nature. I mean, she exudes power, and uh, she she's speaking these truths about what's happening in the Amazon in a part of the world that is 
really opposed to what she's doing. I mean, in the 2018 election, 78% of people in the state of Hondonia, where she and Bitete live, voted for Bolsonaro. It looks like it'll be even higher in this upcoming election. So a really hostile environment to be proudly and boldly uh, shouting to the world about, about what's happening. And dangerous. Very dangerous, yeah. Nadinia suffers, uh, you know, weekly death threats at this point. Uh, when her kids were younger, they had to be escorted to and from school with armed security guards. Uh, she has had to sacrifice so much about her life and, and the way that she wants to live in order to be able to do this work. When you hand off some of your production and form a partnership with Uru, they're going to see the world differently than you would see it. Um, it's just inevitable that what you think might be extraordinary, they would find commonplace. What they might find extraordinary, you might find commonplace. When you start receiving images and footage from them, what is their point of view? Because it's probably not your point of view. And how does that start to shape the look of the movie itself? So when COVID happened and we were cut off from being able to physically be with Bitate and the Uru, wow, we started, you know, getting hard drives sent from from their territory to us. And every time we opened it up, it was so exciting because it was either like, this is going to be gold or, or I'm not sure what this is. Can you explain it? Um, and it was really interesting to see the types of things that they chose to document about themselves because there was not a one-to-one overlap with what I thought would be structurally important for the story that was kind of taking shape in my mind. Um, you know, there were birthday parties and there were like uh, just lots of things that felt sort of uh, outside the scope of the film, but it helped me understand how this community was seeing themselves, as well as some really important scenes for the film, territorial surveillance missions, um, which I had filmed, you know, half a dozen of before. But the way that they filmed it aesthetically was so different from the way that I filmed it. And their scenes were just better. It was just better footage. And let's explain what these are. These are basically the physical taking of land, the cutting down of trees or maybe of homes. This is really kind of, this is invasion footage, basically. Is that a fair way to describe it? Absolutely. They go out on foot with bows and arrows to try to find people that are illegally invading and setting up camp in their land. And it's really dangerous. These people are armed. And so... And not with bows and arrows. No, with with firearms. Although... You know, the Uruwa with a bow and arrow, I think, is is more dangerous than anybody I know with a firearm. Um, but yeah, I mean, they go out in in this really hands-on way to defend their forest. It's not it's not theoretical. It's it's really boots on the ground. And Tangai, my co-cinematographer, the way that he filmed it was so direct and urgent and and riveting for me. Uh, it was hard to look away from and captured the. Uh, confusion and chaos of some of these moments in a way that I just wasn't seeing it. And and I, I really appreciated that. I think the film is so much better for it. You use the word settlers and it's used in the film. What is it they want and what does it feel, what do they feel they're entitled to? Because they probably don't see themselves as criminals. Maybe some do, but they see themselves a different way. How would you describe that? Yeah, they see themselves as heroes. They see themselves as virtuous pioneers going out and creating something out of nothing. This is Manifest Destiny in Portuguese. 101. Yeah, this is this is the creation of private property from wilderness. And, and private property is something that is sacred uh, to that country. You know, what could be better? What could be of a higher standing? Uh, and so they feel unfairly criminalized. They also see themselves as victims of this criminalization of their lifestyle. And in a sense, there is a grain of truth in that, in that 
the Brazilian government had encouraged people during the dictatorship and prior to go up into the Amazon and to chop down trees. There was something akin to the American 40 acres and a mule policy, where if you chopped down enough rainforest, you would get title to that land and own it because that was a good thing you were doing. You're moving the country forwards. And so they have really ingrained that that way of seeing things. Of course, now with a greater understanding of the rainforest and its importance, Brazil has shifted in a different direction. Um, but they've really clung to that idea that that they are the heroes of this story, and they relished the opportunity to have somebody who was who was going to try to listen to that. It almost feels like the people that you spend time with become media savvy. That you, I think, intentionally empower them. That you educate them. That there is a collaboration here that's beyond you know, what each one is giving to the other for the film, that there's something that they need or they might need, but that something that you and your team clearly want to leave behind. How would you define what it was that you wanted to give them in terms of how they could work by themselves going forward? Bitete had this interest in the media independent of us. I think a lot of people watch the film and sometimes say, oh, wow, you know, you guys introduced him to cameras. That's not how it happened. Bitete was out writing grant applications for drones and GPS all by himself, purely because, you know, it would take four or five days sometimes to hike to uh, a site where some deforestation had occurred. This is thick, dense Amazonian jungle. It's hard to move through that. Up from above, you take a drone for 20 minutes, clear flight, it's so much easier. Uh, and then you have metadata burnt into this image. You can take that to the public prosecutor and, and see some action. So Bitete, you know, by himself as this young visionary leader, identified that power. What I think we brought into it was the idea that film can also be an artistic representation of, of how you feel and how you want the world to see and perceive you. Bolsonaro often brings this idea that there are iPhone indigenous people. I'm, I'm doing air quotes, but we're on radio. Um, meaning that if you engage with technology, if you're politically savvy, if you're you know part of the media, you can no longer access indigenous identity. You know, you're stripped of that. The flip side of that is indigenous, real indigenous people are the ones in the forest, not engaged with political life, not making too much noise. And Bitete and this young generation reject that false binary outright and say, no, I am proudly indigenous in touch with my traditional heritage and my culture. And I'm using these powerful tools to assert that in the public sphere. And, and I felt so inspired by that. Yeah, Bolsonaro is basically saying they're crisis actors, right? Absolutely. <laughs> We've yeah, heard fake that news. before, fake news. Totally. What has happened since you left? Is there a reason to be optimistic or reason to be... <laughs> Pessimistic. Yeah, I think there's there are there's hope. I mean, we have to have hope in order to keep fighting. Um, we'll we'll take it where we can get it. Bitete uh, recently got into university. He's going to study journalism at the Federal University of Hondonia, which couldn't be more excited about. He'll be the first member of the Uruwau to go to university. Um, you know, in, in some ways, the community is is better prepared to respond to attacks in the media. Uh, at the same time, violence levels have only been raised. And with the election, any political instability provides cover for more violence to go unnoticed. And so I think the next six months are going to be really critical to understand what happens. Alex, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. After the break, some good and bad news for Disney+. Plus. Alias has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. 
I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at las.com slash events. Finally, here's my weekly chat with KPCC Morning Edition host, Suzanne Watley. This week, we talked about the increasingly competitive and costly battle between streaming services for your subscription dollars. Here's my conversation with Suzanne. Great to see you, John. Great to see you as well. So, uh, you know, we know that everybody likes a good tearjerker, and I realize that you have one of your own coming up. I believe later today you are taking your youngest child off to college. I am, and I'm going to try not to cry. So we should talk about something other than taking Henry (laughs) to Grinnell College in Iowa. Uh, We'll be empty nesters. We'll see how that goes. Oh, I've done that twice (laughs) now, and uh, it's it's never easy. So um, you've been keeping your ear to the ground on the streaming wars. What are you hearing? Well, a couple of things. The Walt Disney Company reported it now has more than 221 million streaming subscribers, which is more than Netflix. But Disney gets a little asterisk by that number, because if you subscribe to a Disney bundle, say you get Disney+, Plus, Hulu, and ESPN+, Plus, that counts as three subscriptions, not one. So Netflix is still ahead in household subscriptions at the same time. Warner Brothers Discovery, which we talked about when it canceled the critically acclaimed Gordita Chronicles, announced dozens of layoffs in its streaming service, HBO Max. And remember that Netflix lost nearly one million subscribers in its most recent quarter, which was the most ever. And this is possibly a result of uh, people not being shut in by the pandemic anymore. Other than all three being streaming services, is the news about Disney Plus, HBO Max, and Netflix all connected? Um, Let me think about that. Yes. (laughs) Um, It really points to not only how competitive the streaming wars have become, but also how costly they are. Disney has spent a fortune signing up new subscribers and creating content for its streaming platforms. In its most recent quarter, Disney said it lost $1.1 billion on streaming. Yes, $1.1 billion in just three months, and which was some $300 million worse than predicted. And it's raising the monthly price of Disney Plus nearly 40% from, 70, from $7.99 a month to $10.99 a month. And could that kind of price hike accelerate cancellations, which is, as folks know, becoming an industry-wide problem? 1-800-YES. I mean, think about it. The research firm Antenna recently reported that almost 20% of subscribers to platforms like Netflix or HBO Max or Disney Plus canceled three or more subscriptions over the past two years. So it's becoming increasingly imperative that streamers create must-see content that will both attract new subscribers and retain those who are already subscribing. But must-see content comes with a big price tag, as you've noticed. It does, and it comes with another problem. Um, You can do well in streaming by offering many things to a few people. This is the long-tail theory, that you have a wide range of titles, that there's something for everybody. The opposite is the blockbuster mentality, where you offer a few things to many people and devote most of your resources to not nearly as many niche titles. The problem with that kind of thinking is a show like this. It's your game. Take it. 
It's a little out of context, but that is Queen's Gambit. Now, Scott Frank, who created that show, I've known for a long time, and he said that while he was filming that series, and he told me this, he had no idea if anybody would ever watch it. Turns out he was wrong, but to me, that's the kind of programming that is at risk. If you're only focusing on blockbusters like studios do, it's all sequels, remakes, spinoffs, reboots, whatever. A show like Queen's Gambit becomes a lot iffier. And if a show like Queen's Gambit goes away, that's going to be a really sad development for all of us. John Horn, thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you, Suzanne. Thanks for listening to Retake. We'll see you again next week. I'm John Horn. Retake is produced and engineered by Michael Cosentino and Monica Bushman. The editor is Suzanne Levy. The associate producer is Sabir Brara, with production assistance this week from Lucy Kopp. And a special thanks to the entire KPCC LAS newsroom. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.